Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Okay, welcome to New Books in Language, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Malcolm Keating, and today we're talking to Alessandro Graheli, editor of the Bloomsbury Research Handbook of Indian Philosophy of Language, which was published in 2020 by Bloomsbury Academic. Welcome to New Books in Language, Alessandro. Thanks for speaking with us. Thanks for inviting me, Malcolm. Well, let's let's get into things. We usually start our interviews by asking our authors to tell us a little bit about how they came to be interested in the topic of their book. So how did you get to be interested in Indian philosophy of language? Uh, yeah, uh, well, uh, probably during this interview, it will uh, pass out very clearly that Indian philosophy of language uh, it is not actually a, a category, a, a discipline in itself, but is rather mm-hmm. a misnomer given to us uh, uh, English-speaking people to mm-hmm. a huge, broad, uh, many disciplines uh, that uh, historically have been built in South Asia. Mm-hmm. But how did I become interested in it? Is uh, I would say that uh, it starts from my experiences in India, Mm-hmm. in the 80s and 90s, when I began studying Sanskrit in India, I very quickly realized that uh, every philosophical uh, discussion in, uh, in Sanskrit literature mm-hmm. goes back to the ancient grammarian Panini, mm-hmm. who lived uh, like uh, 500 years uh, BCE, and mm-hmm. uh, 400 years BCE, and uh, he... He is uh, arguably the author of the most influential Indian book ever, mm. called the Eight-Chapter Grammar, and uh, is a 4,000 aphorisms describing every detail related mm-hmm. to Sanskrit language. Mm-hmm. So that uh, realization, if, if I can paraphrase uh, a known uh, Greek uh, motto that was uh, said to be written at the academy mm-hmm. of Plato, let not the geometer enter this place. <laughs> so in India, you would say, let not the grammarian enter, enter the philosophical debate. <laughs> for, for example, there is a, a treatise of uh, uh, logic written in the 15th, 16th century, and uh, in the introduction, it is said that this book is written for the education of the kids, Bala, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. and uh, the commentators, uh, unanimously, they comment this Bala, kids, children, mm-hmm. as mm-hmm. those who don't know logic, but mm-hmm. who have studied Sanskrit grammar. Mm-hmm. So Sanskrit grammar is at the core of uh, every philosophical enterprise in India. And that is where I would say I began to become interested in what we can call uh, philosophy of language in India. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Great. Thank you. So this book, 
which is titled Indian Philosophy of Language, and as you're suggesting, and as we'll see, includes a wide range of, of topics and texts. It collects 21 contributions together. It's divided into four parts. So there's a, dis a section on speech units, section on word meanings, a section on sentence meaning, and a section on implicatures. And um, before we get into the details of those parts, why did you select those four topics? Uh, and maybe can you tell us just a little bit, and you've mentioned Panini, but who, who are the major contributors to the conversation in the Indian traditions? Um, I... My my main work in the last uh, two decades, I would say, is, uh, is pivoting around an author whose name is Jayanta and was living in 9th century Kashmir in northern mm. India. And uh, Jayanta is uh, a very yeah, prolific author uh, who is generally... Uh, recognized as a stalwart uh, uh, logician. Mm -hmm. and, uh, but he was writing about, uh, although he's, called, he's named, belongs to the tradition of logic uh, in name, he was an expert in three important disciplines. Mm -hmm. And that they are the science of words, the science of sentences, and the science of uh, epistemology, sources of knowledge. Mm -hmm. So these three disciplines that we could, could also call grammar, Vedic exegesis, and uh, uh, epistemology, mm -hmm. and logic perhaps, epistemologic-logic. Mm -hmm. So these three disciplines were the backbone of the scholarship of any pundit at the time of Jayanta in uh, mm -hmm. northern India. So it was a trivium of disciplines that was forming the, it was the formation, the building of the philosophical character of every recognized scholar. Mm -hmm. So these three sciences are forming uh, the, it's, uh, it's the curriculum, the necessary curriculum to write uh, authoritative books uh, at the time in India. So based mm -hmm. on these uh, three disciplines, I decided to structure this book. Mm -hmm. Because Jayanta, this author, is uh, himself uh, the author of a great uh, work, a monument of Sanskrit scholarship, which uh, is half of it is about language and about philosophy of language indeed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So these three disciplines, grammar, Vedic exegesis, and uh, epistemology, the Sanskrit names are Vyakarana, Mimamsa, and Nyaya. These three mm -hmm. disciplines are, uh, you, the, the reader of my book, will notice that they are overwhelmingly present throughout the chapters uh, of the book. Mm -hmm. Because I, this division of uh, speech units, word meanings, sentence meanings, and implicatures, so four distinct sections of the book, are mm -hmm. actually molded around Jayanta's understanding, Jayanta's structure. So the book uh, mm -hmm. written by Jayanta is structured mm -hmm. in this way. So that is mm -hmm. how the idea came mm -hmm. to me. I mm -hmm. decided to follow a sort of emic mm -hmm. uh, inner, uh, so insider uh, uh, structure mm -hmm. in order to represent uh, also historically 
a, mm. the development of the different schools and uh, contextualize the authors in an his historical framework. So mm -hmm. the old book is, uh, is, is, is chronologically developing. The first chapter mm. is uh, talking about the most ancient authors discussed in the book. And mm. uh, like that, it moves on. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if this. Uh, that's great. Yeah, that's great. Enough, uh, yeah. So, so for for our listeners who aren't familiar with um, the these Indian traditions, maybe we can just briefly before we um, enter into the details. You mentioned Mimamsa, Vedic exegesis, exegesis, Nyaya, uh, epistemology or and logic. Um, what are some of the other major traditions that we should be aware of? And Vyakarana, of course, uh, grammar. Are there other ones that we should keep an eye out for as we continue on in our uh, interview? Uh, yes. Uh, uh, at the time of Jayanta, these were the three uh, important traditions uh, discussing language. There was a, a, another tradition which was antagonistic to this uh, three tradition, that is... Uh, mainly, so let's say, Buddhism, mm -hmm. uh, different shades of uh, Buddhist, uh, Buddhism, uh, Buddhist approach to language, mm -hmm. that, they were part below, that were part of the debate, mostly as uh, opponents, as objector to the thesis of these uh, important three traditions. So, of obviously, this uh, objection contributed throughout the centuries and the millennia to mm. build the ideas in the, in the three traditions we are talking about. So mm -hmm. Buddhism is extremely important, and that's why interspersed in the section of the book, there are some chapters that they are representing the Buddhist voices, because mm -hmm. they were so important in the historical formation of the ideas. Great. Then there is a fifth, uh, let's say, dramatis persona, Mm -hmm. That is uh, uh, the poeticians, let's call him mm -hmm. poet for short. Mm -hmm. So people were uh, discussing uh, uh, the theory of poetry in different ways. And at the time of Jayanta, they were not recognized as uh, real scholars. Jayanta mm -hmm. himself uh, is uh, having sarcastic remarks about poeticians try, trying to enter the scholastic debate. Right. But uh, exactly at the time of Jayanta, very important authors uh, began writing uh, uh, very influential treatises on uh, poetics, and very soon uh, poetics became uh, an extremely important uh, tradition, influencing all other, even the other three that we are, uh, we are just uh, talking about. Mm -hmm. So I would add uh, Buddhism and uh, poetics, Alankara Shastra, mm -hmm. to the fold. Yeah. Okay. Great. So that sets us up to then dig into these four sections of the book. And so in what follows, since there's so many contributions in this, uh, in this volume, rather than trying to take them one by one, I think what we can do is we can talk about each part at a time and then talk about the individual contributions as they're relevant to understanding these holes. I mean, the the relationship between parts and wholes, of course, is an important topic in, in itself. So maybe we can kind of mirror that uh, in our conversation. Um, so, so maybe we can start yeah, then yeah, with uh, uh, the speech units. 
the first part. Yes, yes. Uh, yeah, I think it's a good way to proceed. And uh, maybe I can add that uh, mm-hmm. in, a, in the assignment, so to say, that I mm-hmm. gave to, this, uh, to my contributors, I asked them specifically to focus on uh, representing uh, the voice of uh, an author. Mm rather than trying to represent a tradition mm-hmm. or uh, even worse more tradition compressing a lot of history a very huge span of time in a single mm-hmm. contribution rather i asked mm-hmm. them to represent a single voice on mm-hmm. a very specific topic because in this way my attempt is was to show that how the these ideas were developing in a very dialectical way Mm -hmm. maybe even uh, in a hegelian sense Mm -hmm. in the sense that uh, there is a very clear history of development of these ideas that is uh, uh, produced thanks to a very very well-defined series of thesis antithesis synthesis thesis Mm -hmm. antithesis synthesis like that so i was trying to asking the contributor just focus on a thesis because mm-hmm. your next contributor will take care of the antithesis. You don't have to represent them both. So mm-hmm. like that, that mm-hmm. is how I conceive the book. That's, okay, that's so nice. starting from speech units, uh, this, uh, by speech units, uh, I was thinking in terms of, uh, in Sasurian terms, like signifier and signified. Mm-hmm. So the word and the object meant by the word so these two things are this dichotomy i I, I was having in mind for the first two big sections Mm -hmm. of the book speech Mm -hmm. units and word meanings Mm -hmm. because the 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 sanskrit terms are are actually very very yeah adequate to represent these sasurian terms or if you want Mm -hmm. to see it from the other side sasur Fernando Sussur was uh, <laughs> studying Panini. Mm-hmm. And that's where he was developing many ideas. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So talking about speech units, we have uh, uh, six, uh, six chapters in this part. Mm-hmm. So it, starts, it's all, it all starts from Panini, from grammar. And uh, Maria Pira Candotti, who is uh, a eminent uh, linguist and aspect, uh, expert of uh, Paninian grammar. Mm-hmm. She is uh, uh, discussing the, the problem of what is the minimal speech unit. So is it a sentence? Is it a word? Is it a phoneme? Do phonemes have meaning? And that is what is the the gist of uh, our contribution. It it Mm -hmm. is about uh, uh, the discussion that revolves uh, in a period from the 4th century BCE with Panini and goes until uh, Patanjali, who is uh, the the second next commentator of Panini, two centuries later. So these early philosophers of grammar were discussing in detail this this problem. What is a speech unit? What is the definition Mm -hmm. of a unit of meaning? Mm -hmm. So that is the first chapter. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so just uh, 
maybe briefly yep. um, at a general yep. level, what are some of the uh, options in the the early strata of these texts for what a, a minimal speech unit might be? It is. Uh... I, I I think using uh, the Bloomfield's uh, uh, terminology, we would call it the morpheme, mm -hmm. because uh, in uh, Sanskrit grammar, which is uh, a Sanskrit language, which is a very well structured language in uh, in in the formation, in the morphology and the formation of the different words, uh, adjective uh, derivations of words, and so on. Mm -hmm. This all the parts uh, intrinsic in words also have meanings. For right. example, when I say going, going in Sanskrit, the ing, the gerundive or uh, part, uh, is uh, is uh, is recognized as having a meaning in itself. Mm -hmm. So we could say that even. Uh, uh, sub-segmental uh, parts of words have meanings. Right. But more, uh, phonemes, they don't. Mm -hmm. Now, it's interesting, uh, this also transpires from Candotti's uh, 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 paper, that mm -hmm. uh, the word phoneme in itself in a, is, a, is interesting because phoneme is obviously a very modern word. It's a 20th right. century new coinage. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, uh, there is no uh, exact uh, correspondent in Sanskrit. But there mm. is w the word varna, which is uh, a very close correspective. Mm -hmm. It is mm -hmm. almost a phoneme. So that mm -hmm. is why we like to translate the Sanskrit word as phoneme, because uh, mm -hmm. it is uh, so, so, yeah, so um, almost exact, an almost exact translation. Mm -hmm. So, and mm -hmm. this idea of phoneme is uh, it's quite sophisticated. In a, it's a very yeah, recent uh, development in the history of philosophy, I would say. So, it's yeah. um, it's uh, what Candotti points out that the phoneme is not a unit of meaning, but the morpheme is. Morpheme mm -hmm. means uh, sub-segmental parts of words, such as a stem, a affix, suffix, proverb. Mm -hmm. or uh, yeah, any other subsegmental parts of words that these are units of meaning right. in, uh, in grammar, in uh, mm -hmm. Sanskrit grammar. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and so in this section on speech units, maybe we can uh, continue and think about some of the other contributions. So some of the topics that are brought up are the, what are these major divisions as well as um, some what we might characterize as the ontology or the metaphysics of these phonemes. What what are they um, what are they like? So maybe you could talk about that with the next couple of um, contributions. I think they share that uh, uh, focus. Yes. Uh, so when we talk about the phonemes, uh, let's uh, talk, uh, some people uh, who don't like to use the linguistic term phonemes for the Sanskrit equivalent. They use speech unit mm -hmm. or sound unit. So what are these speech sounds in reality? So that is the question that uh, other uh, traditions and authors have asked. Mm -hmm. And the second contribution is uh, written from the point of view of the exegetes, the mimamsaka, uh, people who were uh, uh, 
mostly busy in trying to unravel the hermeneutics, the meaning of the Veda, which right. is the ancient uh, Indian uh, scripture mm-hmm. that all, most of these authors have in mind as a background. So uh, these mimamsakas, these uh, exegetes, were uh, having a very strong idea that uh, sound is permanent. Mm -hmm. So it was, let's say, a dogma, a dogmatic Mm -hmm. uh, aspect of their philosophy is that uh, sound is permanent. Mm -hmm. And one can easily build a connection with the sacred scripture, with the Veda, because Mm -hmm. if a sacred scripture, if something spiritual is uh, invented anew by a human being, the sacrality of the scripture is demeaned. So that's Mm. why they were having in mind an idea of eternal sound. Mm -hmm. And therefore, even phonemes are supposed to be eternal, permanent. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This goes back also to the relationship between uh, signifier and signified, or Mm -hmm. word and meaning. This relationship for the exegetes is supposed to be permanent, mm. to be fixed. It is mm-hmm. not uh, an invention, a convention. It is right. a fixed, permanent relationship. So the second contribution speaks about the Vimamsa or uh, exegetes uh, exegetes theory of uh, phonemes mm. as immutable speech units. Mm-hmm, that can be mm-hmm. learned, remembered, and reused in constant patterns. Mm-hmm. So the question, uh, just to be give a practical uh, hook here. So yep. if I say cow, and you understand a bovine with uh, certain characteristics, given milk or whatever. So mm-hmm. when I say cow, and you say cow, coming from mm-hmm. a different background with a different mm-hmm. pronunciation, mm-hmm. the phonic, the sound uh, quality of our two correspective uh, enunciation utterances of cow are totally different. Right. I will, I, would say it, I will say it with certain pitch, a certain accent, and you will say it with another pitch and another accent. Mm-hmm. And yet, a third listener will still understand the same object referent cow from our two utterances. Mm -hmm. So how is this possible if uh, 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 sound is eternal? Mm -hmm. So that is uh, the question that uh, these exegetes were also tackling, answering Mm -hmm. this problem of the uniformity of comprehension for heterogeneous, uh, heterogeneous utterances. Right. And so so that, then, I, that she discusses this. So now, yeah. maybe we can move and, to the third. Right, yeah. because that so Unless you want to say something more on this. No, I was just going to say that's a nice transition then to the topic of Nyaya on the ontology of, of speech. Yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. Because uh, the epistemologists, logicians, the Nyayikas, unlike the exegetes, they didn't uh, buy this idea of a permanent speech. Right. Why? For bas- basically, uh, Nayaikas, uh, the logicians, uh, are uh, in their uh, faith, in their core, uh, 
hard-rooted empiricists. They are, let's say, naive realists. They believe in what they, we see and touch and in a, an external reality of things. Mm-hmm. And uh, experience tells us, quite obviously, that sound is not permanent, but is ephemeral. Mm-hmm. It is momentary. Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. say something and this sound is quickly gone. Mm-hmm. So how do, why, do, why, why should you postulate a permanence of sound? Mm-hmm. So, and this applies also to phonemes. So right. when we utter a word like cow, for uh, the Nayaikas observe that uh, you may think that this is a, 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 a permanent sound, but uh, uh, because it, there is a, um, a, a stability of meaning, but uh, that is not uh, what happens in reality. When we say the word cow, the, 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 the term, the sound is quickly gone. What stays with us is uh, the meaning, which is the result of having learned a relationship between a signifier and the signified. Mm-hmm. So how do you learn this relationship is what uh, the epistemologists want to focus on. Right. And so, and, so uh, they... Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. And see, and, and there, that is where how the debate unfolds between the two schools. Because on one side, you have the exegetes, which have, we have the, this idea of permanent sound, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, in connection, a permanent relationship between sounds and meanings. And the logicians want to, to have an ephemeral sound and a conventional relationship mm-hmm. between mm-hmm. word and meaning. You could uh, easily build a parallel with the debate uh, between physis and nomos, uh, between the position of Plato and Aristotle here. Mm-hmm. Because this, mm-hmm. is, this is really what, what, what it is about. We have a natural mm-hmm. relationship, according to the exegetes, and you have a conventional relationship, according mm-hmm. to the Nayaikas. Mm-hmm. So this and is... Uh, yes, please. Malcolm, yeah, I was just going to say, and so, so, so far, you have uh, sort of two opposing, as you were putting it, uh, a thesis and a a counter thesis or antithesis uh, uh, in Hegelian terms. Um, But then, in the next uh, couple of chapters, we take up another position, uh, Spota, um, which isn't exactly uh, aligned directly with Mimamsa or Nyaya, and so the next few um, few chapters. Take up, take up this view. Can you talk a little bit about Spota, what that is, and how it fits into this understanding of the permanence and impermanence of phonemes? Yeah, yeah. The connection is uh, is uh, both uh, in terms of uh, the ontology of permanence or in, or impermanence, and uh, in terms of the what is the unit of meaning. Mm-hmm. So, spota is an untranslatable term. Uh, uh, we, if one tries to translate, you end up with things like explosion, burst, <laughs> flash, mm-hmm. which obviously doesn't tell us much from a linguistic uh, point of view. Right. But the idea is that of the spota is that uh, for the 
later grammarians, so here we are talking about uh, 5th century CE, mm -hmm. when uh, Bartrichari, a, a great, a very uh, influential author, uh, wrote a treatise about uh, the the about philosophy of uh, of grammar so that is when grammar really become a philosophical enterprise mm -hmm. and this idea of the spota is that uh, when we say a sentence when we utter a sentence this sentence is a indivisible unit that conveys a indivisible meaning there mm -hmm. is uh, there are no sub segmental parts that what we call words, what we call morphemes, what we call phonemes, are mm -hmm. all fictional elements. Right. So how does this connect to the previous chapter? It connects because uh, uh, the, the, uh, the proponents of the spota are, having, are, are siding with the exegetes in the, in the sense that sound is permanent. Mm -hmm. But they are differing, they are di 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 diverging from both the epistemologists and the exegetes because they think that uh, these uh, subsegmental parts, like phonemes and words, are not real entities. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There is no reality in the subdivisions of speech. And right. this is obviously a very important intuition that uh, was, uh, let's say, confirmed by modern uh, phonetics and linguistics, because when you, when you, when you try to do subsegmental analysis of, uh, of uh, utterances, uh, even from, uh, from, the, from a technical point of view, by recording and analyzing right. The, right. the wavelengths of the sound, you generally see that there is hardly any interruption in uh, mm -hmm. speech. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the idea of, 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 of meanings of words detached from uh, their natural environment, which is the sentence, it mm -hmm. is uh, really difficult to sustain from a philosophical point of view. Mm -hmm. So that mm -hmm. is uh, Bartrieri's idea. Right. So and his idea so is that it is, you, ca you, ca you can talk about words and phonemes and morphemes if you need to teach uh, language, because it's a mm -hmm. usual, useful pedagogical uh, device, mm -hmm. but there is no external reality in these mm -hmm. uh, subsegmental parts. Mm -hmm. And this pota is uh, the unit of meaning, the minimal unit of meaning that can be called that can be a sentence, a paragraph, a chapter, a book, and ultimately language as a logos, as a unit in itself. Mm -hmm, they mm -hmm. end up as being uh, very, very committed monists right. of, of language. So right. that is uh, the, the Sporta position. Mm -hmm. Yes. And that's in the, the, the chapter by Akane Saito. The previous chapter. Akane, was... Akane Saito did a fantastic mm -hmm. job in uh, developing, in showing uh, the whole history of this influential mm -hmm. concept of Sporta, mm -hmm. starting mm -hmm. from the early days and right. going back throughout the early modern era. So that right. is uh, a very, a, a very, um, very, very lucid presentation mm -hmm. of the mm -hmm. transformation of the mm -hmm. idea throughout the ages. 
Great. And the previous chapter was yours. And then I don't think we mentioned uh, that it was Monica Nowakowska who wrote the chapter on uh, permanent phonemes to words, which is about Mimamsa, Jaimini, and Shabara. Um, so, so those yes, are the yes, first yes, four right. contributors. Uh, I just want to make sure we get get their names in here. And so, then the, ne- the next two, we have Sarah McClintock's um, discussion of Spotna picking up on a, a yet another um, uh, move here in uh, response to the Spotna theorists. And then the speech units gets wrapped up with Marco Ferrante on um, Pratyabhinya or recognition. So, maybe can you encapsulate the next two briefly for us before we move on? Yes, the, 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 main, uh, the main objection of the Buddhists to the Spota theory is that uh, uh, the indivisible Spota, so this uh, uh, idea of, a, of the whole uh, reality being compressed in this unit of speech, which is called Spota, we call, mm-hmm. call Shabda Advaita, the monistic uh, uh, language. This is uh, also a fictional idea. That is mm-hmm. the Buddhist idea. That is not what is there in reality. Buddhism is uh, committed to a philosophy of changes right. and impermanence. And this uh, eternity of the spota is obviously not uh, viable. So they're, uh, they're attacking the Bhartriharis and the Grammarians, Tinets, by saying that... Uh, yeah, this this idea of unit of uh, of speech doesn't work, mm-hmm. and uh, mm-hmm. while uh, it's important instead to have a relativistic account of speech segmentation, so this mm-hmm. is interesting because uh, uh, from this point of view they actually side with this uh, idea of the proponents of the sputa. As I was mm-hmm. saying, the subsegmental parts, phonemes, and so on, are just useful pedagogical tools, but they are right. not real entities. <laughs> the Buddhists would uh, subscribe this idea, right. but they wouldn't subscribe the idea of this uh, fictional, eternal, uh, singular, mm-hmm. individual uh, thing that is called spota. Mm-hmm. And then in the but last as far chapter, as Marco Ferrante's, uh, yeah, sorry, no, I was just going to transition yeah. as you are. <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah, so as far as Marco Ferrante goes, Marco Ferrante is, uh, is uh, showing a, an application of the Spota uh, idea to, uh, to, in a transition uh, into theology and uh, poetics in the, in, the, in the works of Abhinava Gupta, who was a mm-hmm. Kashmiri author writing a, a century after uh, Jayanta, so in the 10th century. Mm-hmm. So here you see in this uh, chapter a, a, an application of the idea about speech units developed in, uh, in the previous uh, contributions. Right. So that brings us then... Um to the second part of the book, which is about theories of word meaning. So in thinking here of the relationship between sign and signifier, now we're looking at the question of uh, what it is that words refer to. And there are several several options here uh, that are laid out. Words refer to individuals, words refer to a, a, a form or a sort of um, configuration, words refer to universals, and then there's some other views uh, sort of in between uh, and different options um, out of those. 
So what are the different views? What are the different positions, um, or sorry, the people that are holding these positions in this section? So here, the, the section, uh, the second part of the book uh, starts uh, from uh, the, a discussion about uh, a, the Nyaya, the epistemological, logical position about uh, the meaning of common nouns. That is uh, Matthew Dusty writing this mm -hmm. contribution. And again, the presentation of the different uh, uh, positions is done uh, uh, chronologically. So mm -hmm. it starts from the earlier idea of uh, a, let's call it a universal. Mm -hmm. And uh, because the universal is uh, by most authors considered to be the referent of individual words. Right. not sentences, words. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the, at the level of segmentation of words, the meaning is the universal. Mm -hmm. But the logicians have some nuance in this uh, respect. Mm -hmm. Because again, uh, working out of observation of reality, we don't see universals floating around in the world, we see individuals. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So when I pick up my cup, I don't uh, uh, pick up uh, universal cupness. I don't keep pick up, pick up all the cups existing in the world. I pick up mm -hmm. uh, my individual cup. Mm -hmm. So the, the idea developed in this first uh, chapter of the second part is that the meaning of individual words is not a universal but not even an individual. It mm -hmm. is an individual caring, bearing uh, the universal with itself. Mm -hmm. So is uh, a universal bearing uh, individual, which mm -hmm. is uh, called Tadvat in Sanskrit, the possessor of that, mm -hmm. that being, being the universal. So this position is attacked in the second part, in the second chapter of, uh, mm -hmm. by the Buddhists, mm -hmm. which uh, with Dinnaga was explicitly attacking this idea of a universal possessing individual as a meaning of word. And mm -hmm. with Dinnaga, with this uh, influential uh, Buddhist author, uh, whose uh, Kei Kataoka is writing about him in the eighth chapter of the book, the second mm -hmm. uh, chapter of the second part. Mm -hmm. So Kei Kataoka discusses uh, Dinnaga and his attack on this idea of uh, a individual possessing a universal. And more at large, it is an attack of the idea of universal in itself, of a positive right. universal. Mm -hmm. So Dinnaga is, uh, is, is postulating the idea of uh, a negative universal, so to say, or the meaning of a word is the exclusion of that particular meaning by that particular meaning of all other possible existing meaning. So right. when I say cow and mm -hmm. you understand this uh, referent that we call cow, mm -hmm. 
the process, the cognitive process on the side of the listener is that he is excluding, in, before understanding cow, he is excluding all the possible other uh, reference, like horse, goat, whatever other animal. So now, Kei Kataoka does an excellent job in showing how Dinnaga's idea works by genuses, genera, and species. Mm -hmm. Genera, species, and differences. Genus, species, and difference. And mm -hmm. uh, he shows how, uh, with the very nice diagrams also, how, he, how this is very similar to the idea of the tree of porphyry. Mm -hmm where uh, in, a, in a development of Aristotelian ideas uh, is uh, the meaning uh, of words are, uh, are, uh, are the result of a, an analysis of association and dissociation from uh, kindred species and, gener uh, and genus. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And this so work like a... uh, by analyzes the differences uh, in this uh, mental uh, tree that we are building in our mind when we are learning language. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So this is uh, the, the Naga's contribution. He is attacking the idea univer of universals and bring, bringing a sort of apophatic uh, linguistics where everything works by negation. Right, and so Dignaga is, in this way, is writing... Sorry, he's writing in the yeah, fifth and six, fifth and sixth century, just to get our, our listeners on on board yeah, with fifth, the chronology yes. here. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Great. Okay, great. So, so that's Kei Katoako's, um, um contribution, and this is in response to and in criticism to early Nyayakas on their understanding of, in particular here, we're thinking of common nouns, things like tree and cow and so on. So it's important to note that we're not explicitly looking at other kinds of, of, of words here for early Nyaya. Um, what about uh, Mimamsa, uh, the next contribution? So Mimamsakas have some responses to the Buddhists like Dignaga. Yes, so in Mimamsa, we have uh, a, a very strong defense of the universals. So, so this is uh, the third uh, chapter of the second part, which is mm -hmm. written by Elisa Frisky. Mm -hmm. So the focus is uh, of, uh, on, uh, on the distinction between the meaning of words and the meaning of sentences. Mm -hmm. As I was uh, uh, mentioning before, the Mimamsa uh, school, the exegetes, are very much focuses, focused on the sentence and the sentence meanings. According to Jayanta, again, the grammarians are the experts of words. Mm -hmm. The Mimamsakas, the exegetes, are the experts of sentences. Right. And the Logicians are the experts of theory of knowledge. So when you have a problem related to words, you go and ask the grammarians. <laughs> when you have a problem related to sentences, you should go to the Mimamsaka. That is Jayanta's uh, basic uh, mm -hmm. scheme. And uh, so when you, we talk about universals, we are talking about universals of individual words. 
So as reference of individual words. But what about the meaning of a sentence? Mm-hmm. So the Mimamsakas goes back, go back to a previous uh, uh, treatise, uh, ancient aphorisms uh, of their school uh, and previous commentaries of the aphorisms, and they have a dictum which says that uh, the, se- the word means a universal, the sentence means a particular. Mm-hmm. And what happens in a sentence is the word that consist that build the sentence that form the sentence are reciprocally or mutually specifying each other mm-hmm. so if i say cow i denote with the, this individual word I, de- I denote a universal if i say white i denote universal whiteness but if i say white cow i denote an individual that is the idea, mm-hmm. because white mm-hmm. specifies an individual. Let's uh, figure out, for, for example, because this should be read in context. Now, if you have a context, you have a, you have a stable with, uh, with uh, 10 cows, uh, mm-hmm. one of which is white. If I say white cow, you will be able to determine what I'm talking about. If I say right. cow, you will not know which out of the 10 uh, uh, multicolored cows I'm uh, referring to. So the idea is that uh, language works like that, by mutual specifications of uh, individual uh, word meanings. Let's call them reference. For uh, mm-hmm. Maybe it's more helpful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that is uh, the third contribution speaks about that. The problem right. of the Buddhist Dinaga idea, according to the Mimamsaka, is that mm-hmm. this apoha, this uh, theory of exclusion, of figuring out a meaning by excluding every possible uh, other referent and meaning is very difficult to be applied in reality. It would take a lifetime to understand every each possible word. So it works very well theoretically. It doesn't work Mm -hmm. well practically. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so so in the, the ensuing parts of this, a section on word meanings, we continue, as you say, chronologically thinking about this question about uh, both what is the referent of, uh, of a word, as well as how do we come to um, be aware of or cognize the referent of a word. So there's, there's an epistemological element here, as well as we might say a, a, a sort of a metaphysical or ontological one, what is, what is the referent. Uh, and so in the next few chapters, we take up further Buddhist moves in this discussion. We have Patrick McAllister talking about Dharmakirti, who is after the Naga. And then we have another chapter uh, by you on um, the how these uh, semantic relations are actually uh, brought about uh, causally. And then we can conclude going even further um, uh, chronologically into Navyanyaya. So can you, can you walk us through the next few moves in this argumentative, uh, argumentative uh, dialectic? Yeah, so Dharmakirti is a commentator of uh, Dinnaga, and uh, he is uh, defending Dinnaga's position from the criticism of both the uh, Nayaikas, uh, logicians and exegetes. And that is why where uh, Dharmakirti becomes so important, because it is, uh, he refines 
the Naga's ideas in a way which is, uh, yeah, it's, it's a defense of the Naga. And mm-hmm. uh, it's again defending this idea of the theory of uh, exclusion. Mm-hmm. This, uh, yeah, I was referring to as an apophatic uh, theory of language. And, but uh, with many more nuances of uh, uh, what, what Patrick McAllister did in this chapter is, uh, is dovetailing, connecting the Dharmakirti's idea with the Phrygian and uh, also Quinean ideas, uh, more recent, I, 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 yeah, this, is, this distinction between sense, reference, Mm-hmm. That uh, is found uh, uh, in a, that is uh, yeah, co- coined mm-hmm. by by Frege is uh, mm-hmm. Patrick tries to to show how this applies to the Apoha theory of uh, Dharmakirti. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so, so the, the idea problem that... is uh, is again synonymity, no? Because if you say mm-hmm. if you have a, a word which means uh, uh, which uh, we, uh, the problem of a uh, synonymity, going back to the, he, he connects it with the the, the, the problem of uh, that Frege was pointing out with uh, Venus and uh, having different names according to the perspective of uh, looking at it and calling it in different ways. No? Mm-hmm. So the morning so star. This, and the this again, star, yeah. Uh, yes, exactly, morning star. Yeah, and and this this again goes back. Uh, it's important to, 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 to understand that uh, here we are still th- talking about individual word meanings mm-hmm. and not sentences, mm-hmm. which is uh, I, what I glean also from the discussion of uh, McAllister uh, in relation to Quine and Frege. It's, uh, it's also apparent how the Fregean distinction of sense and reference has... Uh, some interesting outcomes when you start thinking about reference of uh, uh, sentences, mm-hmm, if that mm-hmm. is even possible. Right. Mm-hmm. So, okay, and, and about the next chapter, semantic yeah. relations, mm-hmm. we, talk, we are talking so far about speech units and uh, units of meanings and about reference, universal mm-hmm. exclusions. But what is the relationship? between Mm -hmm. these two things. What type of relation is there? Is there a causation, a causal relationship? Is there something, uh, yeah, inherence, uh, an ontologically given permanent relationship between the two? How -hmm. this relation comes about? Mm -hmm. So the logicians have the idea that uh, the relation means knowing that this word means this thing. This knowledge means knowing the relation between word and meaning. And this, is, this, is a, this relation is learned in a particular uh, circumstances in a, with a very specific uh, cognitive process. Specifically, uh, the logicians, they say that when you learn the relationship between a word and a meaning, mm-hmm. you are applying uh, your... Uh, perceptual uh, capacities mm-hmm. because you are observing phenomena in the world while you are hearing sounds 
So mm-hmm. hearing is a perception, observing is another perception. And then you engage in inferential processes when you put the pieces together. So mm-hmm. they have the idea that two things, two cognitive processes are needed to know, to know, to learn this relation, this semantic relation between words and meanings. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that is the, what is discussed in this uh, uh, chapter. Right. And uh, the next uh, chapter by Yoichi Iwasaki, which is uh, modern logics, modern mm-hmm. nyaya, in the sen- modern the sense post-13 uh, uh, century. Mm-hmm. And uh, here we see that uh, we are uh, approaching a particular problem, and that is if this relationship, this semantic relation is a conventional thing that is... Uh, stipulated at some point in time as the logicians would want it to be. So when does it happen? So the answer mm-hmm. is uh, we can do it, we can stipulate a new relationship, me and you now, right. like inventing a technical terms or whatever. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. in general, all uh, semantic relationships are coined by God at the time of creation. That mm-hmm. is the dogmatic assumption. Mm-hmm. Now, Yoichi Iwasaki te- tackles a particular interesting uh, philosophical twist to this. If you say that we know the relationship that God was intending at the time of creation, say mm-hmm. the relationship between the word cow and the referent cow, right. Uh, I know it because God meant it like that, intended it like that at the time of creation, then I cannot learn it. Why? Because I cannot uh, fathom God's intention. God Mm -hmm. is omniscient and I am a finite human being. So I will never learn the meaning of cow as God actually meant it to begin with. Mm -hmm. So, and Yoichi Iwasaki tackles this uh, small, uh, but uh, very telling uh, philosophical twist. Because Hmm. this connects with the debate between exegetes and uh, Mm -hmm. epistemologists, again, nomos Mm -hmm. and physis, that uh, if a relationship is conventional, then we have to assume that is uh, created at some point of time. If it is permanent, fixed, uh, ever, forever, then we don't have to to, to solve this problem. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. that is uh, how it... um, Great. Yeah, so that is a way to close uh, the the two parts between uh, uh, signifiers, speech uh, sound and speech units, and meanings to to show how how does it work, how are they put together. Right. And so, <clears throat> excuse me, in this la- in the second part, then we start with early Nyaya and we close with Nubya Nyaya, or as you say, modern or, or new Nyaya. So we've, we spanned uh, quite a, a long period of time in the second part um, and discussion in Nyaya, Buddhism and Mimamsa. In the third part of the book, in the discussion of sentence meanings, quite naturally, we see a lot of discussion of Mimamsa, who, as you say, are the ones focusing on Bhakya Shastra, on the science of sentences. And uh, there's a discussion of a thinker known as Shalai Kanatha, um, both by um, 
uh, Andrew Allett and Kay Katalika in this uh, section. Um, so maybe you can explain to us in a big picture uh, what Shelley Kanatha, who Shelley Kanatha is, what his question is with regard to sentence meanings, uh, and then take us through some of the dialectic starting from there. Yeah, so, um, yeah, you said it right. They are the experts of sentences and sentence meanings. And so, obviously, in this chapter, they are the, the heroes of, <laughs> uh, of the debate. And Shalikanata, in particular, is, uh, uh, his date is not uh, fixed, uh, it's not very clear. We know that he was living before the 9th century, Mm-hmm. We know that he was living after the 7th century, but uh, yeah, somewhere in between, somewhere in South Asia. Right. But uh, he was uh, uh, the most, uh, arguably, the most influential uh, Mimamsa commentator ever on issues uh, of, uh, of sentence meaning. Mm-hmm. So his uh, very lucid uh, presentation of the different theories of compositionality is uh, what uh, these two chapters are about, particularly the first one by Andrew Ollett. Mm-hmm. The first one is, uh, there are basically two main ideas. As said, we have the Bartrihari and the philosophers of grammar who are saying that the sentence is an indivisible unit. The Mimamsa authors, they uh, oppose this idea and say, no, there are discrete units within, within the sentence, which we call words. Mm-hmm. And uh, these words have meanings. Now, then there is a sentence, which is supposed to be a group of words, and a sentence meaning. So the question is, how do you, from a string of words, reach this unit, which we call sentence meaning? What are the etiological, meriological, and cognitive processes behind Mm -hmm. this phenomenon? That is the question answered, the questions answered by this chapter by Andrew Ollett, by Shalikanata. So we can call it uh, loosely theory of compositionality because indeed there is a phenomenon of compositionality from the atoms that they are the words to Mm -hmm. the whole that is the sentence meaning. But there are two opposing important theories in that. One was uh, starting from uh, uh, the... teacher or founder of the particular branch uh, represented by Shalikanata called Prabhakara and a opposing theory coined uh, or uh, yeah, uh, explained by Kumarila who is another Mimamsaka. So all these people are all Mimamsaka exegetes but they have different uh, approaches in explaining how compositionality works. Right. So Shalikanata's conclusion, just to be brief, because they cannot Mm -hmm. go into the details, is that uh, you have uh, words are never used in isolation. So whenever you you hear a word, either it is nonsensical, because in isolation a word is nonsensical, doesn't yield any meaning, Mm 
mm-hmm. or it is within the framework of a sentence. Right. So even if I say, if you hear sometimes a single word, like let's uh, say that uh, it is very hot in the summer and mm-hmm. I'm teaching my class and I leave the door open to let some air in and students enter the class and uh, distracted, uh, distracted uh, by th- without thinking, he closes the door behind him. And then mm-hmm. I, I, I shout, the door! Mm. So according to Shalikanata, who gives exactly this example in his treatise, Mm -hmm. what I mean is open the door. Because by hearing this single word, door, in in a given context, you actually understand a sentence, even by a single word. So what to speak when you you hear a a well-formed sentence. Mm-hmm. So the idea is that words always occur in sentences and never in isolation. And therefore, you cannot learn the meaning of individual words. Right. So because there is, never a, there is never a possibility to learn. There is no one who, sell, who tells you cow by pointing to a cow. It doesn't work open, happen like that. Mm-hmm. This is uh, how Shalikanata think. No? So you start from the sentence meaning. And then by hearing different sentences, say you, you hear tie the cow, bring the cow, milk the cow, and then you hear other sentences like tie the horse, bring the horse, mount the horse, this type of uh, different sentences. Then as a listener, as a learner, when you learn language, you do a process of uh, extraction and uh, insertion of different words in relationship with different phenomena that he observes. And this extraction and insertion process is what builds this idea of word meanings, which is a derivation of the sentence meaning for Shalikanata. That is the conclusion of his theory of uh, compositionality, briefly said. Right. And so that is the <clears throat> what you just described then is the subject really of Kei Kataoka's second chapter in this section, which is about uh, language acquisition. He's he's exploring that process of how it is that you come to acquire um, the, uh, the the requisite um, associations uh, that you can then employ in in sentence context. Correct. No, no, not exactly, not exactly, because Andrew Olle's chapter is also about language acquisition, mm-hmm. but it is about uh, acquisition of uh, common language, human right. language. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's where, uh, in Olle's chapter, this uh, problem, how a, ch- a child learns language from the observing, hearing and observing the behavior of competent speakers, it is mm-hmm. in Olle's in chapter. Mm-hmm. Okay. Which and leads to in... th- th- this is important because uh, mm-hmm. it is, there is a very clear uh, distinction between the use of language at the time mm-hmm. of learning language mm-hmm. and the use of language at uh, one once you are com- you are competent in language. So different Correct. cognitive processes are at play, mm-hmm. and different uh, different purposes, different needs, and so on. So now, the question answered uh, in the second uh, chapter on Shalikanata, uh, the chapter by Kei Kataoka, mm-hmm. is uh, how do you learn Vedic language? 
which is right. a very intriguing philosophical problem because when you have uh, when you learn human language as said you are a child and you can observe your father your grandfather talking to each other and milking cows bringing cows uh, cooking food uh, whatever no so and you can connect uh, orders uh, and uh, reaction to orders injunction Uh, descriptive sentences, whatever you hear, to real-life uh, phenomena. But now, when you hear, uh, when you read the Veda, when you hear the Veda, the Veda is uh, talking about dharma, mm-hmm. about uh, duty, about moral duty, spiritual duty. And this spiritual duty, this moral duty, is by definition invisible, mm-hmm. untouchable, transcendent, beyond the reach of sentences. So how can you learn the meaning of Vedic words if you cannot touch, if you cannot see the meaning of Vedic words? So that is uh, what uh, Shalikanata does in his uh, treatise, this, and, mm-hmm. uh, uh, and what Keikata Oka elucidate very nicely mm-hmm. in this uh, chapter. I see. So the, the first chapter we And that uh, at... the idea, the, the answer to say, that said just to spill the beans, perhaps, mm-hmm. is just that uh, you need uh, human language. Mm-hmm. to learn Vedic language. Mm-hmm. If, one, if you don't have Vedic, uh, human language, you cannot learn Vedic language mm-hmm. just from the Veda. Right. So right. That you, is need, the... you need both of them. So, so Shalikanatha, in the first two chapters, we see his discussion of compositionality of sentences uh, and the process for which we come to learn and make associations. And then Keikataoka takes that question up in particular Um, in with regard to how we are able to learn the uh, unseen, unseeable reference of Vedic language. Uh, and of course, this is a nice um, point to transition to uh, the next discussion of Mimamsa, which is about the deontic nature of Vedic uh, language. Because, of course, when we're thinking about the language of the Vedas, it's all couched in the context of telling us, as you say, what we ought to do. It's not uh, simply describing, it's, it's commanding. Uh, so this is the subject of the next chapter. Uh, could you say a little bit about that, please? Yes, uh, uh, yes, this is written by Elisa Fereschi, and uh, who is uh, in this in this chapter she is uh, actually representing as uh, her uh, more re- more, uh, most recent research on a connection between uh, Mimamsa mm-hmm. and Vedanta. Mm-hmm. which are also called the previous Mimamsa, Purva Mimamsa, and the Uttara Mimamsa, the mm-hmm. post uh, or uh, later Mimamsa. Mm-hmm. So they are very closely connected. And uh, the, the transition is again uh, uh, due to the fact that uh, there are different understandings between the relation, uh, of the, of, about the relation between uh, human language, common language, and Vedic language. Mm-hmm. And in relation to this, the reference, the meanings, the, the signifiers of these two different types of language. 
So, and there are different understanding in Mimamsa in respect to Vedanta in this relation. But the important thing is that uh, whether human language and Vedic language both are deontic in nature, in their core, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. or whether Vedic language is deontic in nature, while human language is non-deontic, or let's say descriptive mm -hmm. in nature. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So there is this tension, and this is uh, uh, shown by Elisa Freschi defending, uh, uh, showing the, uh, the, the, the advantage of... Uh, or the virtues and defects of the possible approaches on this topic. Mm -hmm. the, mm -hmm. This idea of uh, language being deontic uh, the the is rooted again to the moment of learning language. The, ideas, the idea of Imamsak is that when we learn language, we, we observe uh, a performative aspect of language. Mm -hmm. Even when a child says milk mm. or food or mom uttering the first uh, syllables in his lifetime mm -hmm. is in mm -hmm. a sense uh, giving orders, mm -hmm. asking uh, to someone to do something. So the idea is that language is intrinsically performative. You mm -hmm. don't utter something if you don't want something to happen after your mm -hmm. utterance. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, which is a very, I find, a very important intuition of early Mimamsa. Right. And this is clashing with the idea, for example, of epistemologists who are not seeing language like that. They are seeing language mm -hmm. as eminently descriptive. Right. And Great. the Vedanta and so authors that Elisa brings in the picture are sort of siding with the Nayaikas insofar as uh, human common language. No? Right. And so in this chapter, because you're, you've been emphasizing the authorial voices, um, we're looking at thinkers such as Shankara, Ramanuja, and the later uh, Venkatanatha. Uh, these are different, some of the different thinkers that uh, Elisa takes up in this chapter on the the Vedanta side of things. Yeah, I, I think she focuses in particular to Venkatanatha mm -hmm. and uh, related authors who are uh, really bringing uh, the, 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 the solid part of Vimansa philosophy, importing it in their theology. Mm -hmm. Unlike Shankara, who is not so much of a Mimamsa himself. No? Right. And so what we see there... In the sense uh, of a Purva Mimamsa. He's an anti-Purva Mimamsa. <laughs> yes, Some yes. people say that he's a crypto-Buddhist. Crypto-Buddhist, right, of course. <laughs> but so, so this is a nice uh, point, point of transition. Then thinking about these different Vedanta thinkers, there's, of course, Advaita Vedantins, uh, Shankara being... Uh, chiefly known uh, for most folks, um, and Vishishta Advaita Vedanta, uh, 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 Vedanta uh, uh, Ramanuja, and um, Venkatanatha. Uh, the next chapter takes up Advaita Vedanta um, in particular, um, talking about uh, Prakasha Atman. Can you say a little bit about who he is and what the theory of language is in this view? In this chapter. Yeah, Prakash Atman is a less uh, studied but uh, extremely influential uh, uh, 
uh, Vedanta authors author who picks up after uh, after all the, this is again chronological. Mm-hmm. We are uh, after the 10th century here. And mm-hmm. uh, while all the authors discussed before, of course, uh, uh, yeah, apart from Venkatanata, but the Mimansa authors discussed by Elisa are, are pre the Prakashatman. So this uh, Prakashatman is uh, importing the Bartriharian idea of an indivisible sentence into Vedanta. That is uh, uh, the important thing. And he is trying to explain how language can be can describe this absolute spiritual principle that we call Brahman. Mm. So and so the Brahman is uh, the monist uh, spiritual principle. Mm-hmm. Everything uh, Uh, everything is ultimately one thing is Brahman and all this world of differences including language and meanings and so on is just a illusion or a transformation illusory transformation of that uh, monistic principle so the question is if that is the case how could ever language describe that Brahman Because you have throughout the history of, of uh, Sanskrit literature, going back to Veda and Upanishad and so on, plenty of passages uh, uh, claiming to be describing Brahman. So you need to answer this problem. And uh, the connection is between the indivisibility of language, of a sentence, mm-hmm. of a chapter, of a book, to the mm-hmm. indivisibility of the referent of language, that is Brahman. Mm-hmm. So that is uh, what uh, Hugo David in this chapter very yeah, mm-hmm. lucidly shows uh, this. Mm-hmm. Uh... <clears throat> Great, so, so we have a continuation then of this theme that we've been seeing from, uh, from the beginning of the, the relationship between parts and wholes Uh, the, whether they are fictional or not in the realm of sentences, uh, words, and so on, and an application of this here to the similar questions in the realm of uh, Praman and, and reality, mirrored in language. The final chapter in this section caps us off again with Navyanyaya, uh, Gangesha. And here we're thinking about, in particular, the role of intention in understanding uh, other people's utterances, of course, in this chapter, not always other people. So can you tell us what's going on in this chapter? Well, this is a, a very brief chapter that I, con- I, I thought uh, it was uh, nicely set here because it shows a, a transition to the next section. Mm-hmm. Because here we are saying, we are talking about sentence meaning and for the later uh, new logicians, uh, it's... Uh, A sentence meaning is based on the awareness of a speaker intention. So you need uh, to to glean uh, the intention of the speaker in order to grasp a sentence meaning. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, uh, the problem is, uh, there are several problems here. One problem is how do you know a speaker's intention. A speaker's mm-hmm. intention seems something uh, beyond the reach for a mm-hmm. listener. No, it's a psychological, mm-hmm. mental state of a speaker that we cannot really grasp. 
And uh, yeah, it's, uh, the chapter is very brief because it, it just focuses on a very tiny but uh, yeah, curious example given by Gangesha that mm -hmm. if uh, you need to glean uh, to understand the speaker intention uh, in order to mean to understand the sentence, then what happens when you hear a sentence uttered by a parrot? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You understand something. Right. But, uh, <clears throat> sorry, you, <clears throat> it's very unlikely that you can defend, <clears throat> sorry, the, the idea that the parrot has intentions mm -hmm. and he wants to represent intention with that utterance. So, which, uh, <clears throat> do, sorry, do you need, which leads do you need to take a to second? The, yeah. to, no, it's okay. okay. It's uh, it's uh, th there is uh, there is this um, there is this problem that is uh, this is not uh, uh, there is, there was no space or time for in this book for uh, to deal uh, with this problem. But uh, mm -hmm. there are two levels in understanding language. There is an epistemological level when uh, uh, by hearing a sentence. I know something mm -hmm. with certainty. I get, uh, let's call it a justified true belief about a state of affairs by mm -hmm. learning, a by hearing a sentence, which we would call the result of verbal testimony. Mm -hmm. But there is also a more superficial or less committed uh, understanding of language, which is the just the, 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 the meaning of the words without any epistemological commitment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So right. this, I think, uh, with Gangesha at the time of the new logic that Iwasaki-san is discussing here, you have, uh, you have an awareness of these two levels. Right. Yeah, and so so as you're saying, this this leads us to a topic which is important in the final section of the book, which is that of speaker intention. Uh, so in the last chapters of the book, what you're taking up is the question of how does people can, as people have uh, was um, it's been famously. Um, put in um, so-called Western thought, how people do things with words, that is how they're able to uh, use words to communicate uh, maybe beyond the uh, ordinary meaning of the words, while they're able to convey something beyond the ordinary um, meaning of the sentence and so on. Uh, can you walk us through just some of the major topics that are um, interwoven here. So we're going to Alankara Shastra, as you've in mentioned before, these poetis poeticists, uh, but we're also looking at Mimamsa and Nyaya. So what is it th these thinkers are, are uh, discussing? What are they having a controversy over? Yeah, it's um, <clears throat> the... Uh, already from the title of the sentence uh, of the section, you will uh, notice the, the 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 use of the term implicature, the Gracian uh, term, because uh, here we are not just dealing with the poetical meanings, but mm -hmm. is a broader uh, discussion of uh, the non-spoken aspect of a message conveyed by, by language, and. Uh, 
So we start the chart, the section starts from the from the description of the position of Kumarila, who was uh, already dealt with before by Elisa Freski in the second section. Mm -hmm. And he is uh, the main antagonist of Shalikanata when Shalikanata discussing his, his theory of compositionality. Mm -hmm. So uh, Kumarila thinks that uh, the compositionality of the sentence works from word meanings. When we learn language, we don't learn sentences. We learn individual word meanings. Mm -hmm. Why so? Because otherwise you would need to learn a semantic relation for each and every sentence you, he you hear. For example, if you, yesterday you learned bring the cow and today you learn uh, mount the horse and tomorrow you learn, you hear bring the horse, you would not be able to, mean, to, to get meaning of the third sentence bring the horse. You have to learn mm -hmm. it separately. Mm -hmm. Now, let's add another word. Let's add bring the white cow mm -hmm. and uh, mount the white horse. And uh, tomorrow you have to learn bring the white horse. Then again, each of these, these needs to be learned separately. Mm -hmm. And so on and so on. Let's add an article, bring the white cow. New sentence, mm -hmm. new learning. Mm -hmm. Each of these becomes a discrete thing to be learned separately, which uh, very quickly piles up to a absurdity, impossibility of learning language, because there mm -hmm. are too many sentences. For mm -hmm. example, whenever you, you read a new verse composed by a poet that was never written before, a new combination of words, then you have to go to the poet and ask him <laughs> what it means, because you cannot mean sense by, by, building the, by building the meaning with the building blocks that you have. So Kumarila mm -hmm. is adamant in saying that, no, when you learn language, you learn word meanings, not sentence meanings. Mm -hmm. So this is explained in this uh, chapter. And what is the connection with implicature is very important, mm -hmm. is that uh, words have a power of referentiality, denotation, insofar as individual word meanings. But the sentence meaning is not uh, uh, obtained through the referentiality of the words, but rather to a secondary process, which is called indication, mm -hmm. lakshana. Mm -hmm. So how this lakshana works, this secondary passage is uh, discussed in this uh, nice uh, contribution by Lawrence McCree. Right. And that is uh, uh, important in the connection to implicature because this indication is not something that is expressed by the words themselves. So mm -hmm. you don't, in other words, you don't hear the sentence, bring the cow indication. You hear just bring the cow. The term indication, the reference uh, indication or connection, bring the cow, connection about word meaning. No one says, speaks like that. Mm -hmm. So this is obviously not denoted directly by words. It's something that you as a listener, you are, uh, uh, is a synthetic judgment that you give, that you build up when you hear word, me word re referring to word meanings. Mm 
So this is a secondary cognitive process that is explained by different authors in different ways, like um, postulation, like Mm -hmm. inferential process of sorts. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But it's not direct denotation. So it's something that is not directly spoken by words. Right. What does it mean? Kumarila, like everyone, every of the authors we have discussed, is convinced that words are never used in isolation. They are always used in the framework of a sentence. Which means that there is no denotative uh, language. There is no direct referentiality of language. There is always indication. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All language is implicature. Mm-hmm. So that is the consequence of this, that right. you don't need poetical language to imagine fancy unspoken meanings. Right. Every simple deontic, non-deontic linguistic usage is uh, implicature. Right. So you need the context, you need the, to glean the intention of the speaker, and so on and so on. So that is uh, why this uh, of this chapter here at the beginning of the implication section. Yeah, and if I may, then so just to make a connection then between what you were discussing earlier in part two about word meanings, for Kamarla, insofar as the meanings of words of common nouns are universals, when you say something like, as you were explaining, bring the cow, uh, in context, what you mean is bring that particular cow there in the stable, and so it is indication that's responsible for the listener being able to understand that in that particular context, that's what is meant by the the word cow and not the universal belonging to all cows everywhere and all times. Yeah, precisely, yes. Yeah. yeah. And so so then we have this, this position, which is set out by Lawrence McRae in um, that chapter. How is this related to uh, Jayanta Bhatta in the next chapter? Because he, as you put it, is syncretizing this view that you've just described with Nyaya or the epistemologists. Yes. Uh, so the Jayanta is uh, objecting to this idea of Kumarila. No, he's not alone, like Shalikanata also does. Mm-hmm. The main charge of is that uh, uh, both uh, Kumarila and all the Nayaikas, uh, the Mimamsakas, they are claiming that uh, language, speech, is a source of knowledge sui generis, independent of any other source of knowledge. That means independent of uh, perception and inference. Mm-hmm. Uh, language conveys, conveys uh, knowledge independently. And eminently, the Veda is supposed to teach, to speak independently. Right? Right. Mm-hmm. And uh, so now, if uh, this, uh, uh, if Kumarila claims that every sentence works by indication and not by referentiality, that means that uh, uh, we end up with the endless problem in the teaching, uh, the, in the authority, in the epistemological authority of the Veda mm-hmm. itself. Mm-hmm. Because uh, that means that whenever the Veda says something, speaks, then the listener has to perform some sort of secondary cognitive process, which demeans the independent uh, uh, 
uh, epistemic uh, authority of the Veda. Mm-hmm. Like intersubjective interpretations, uh, this type mm-hmm. of things, you know, subjective, mm-hmm. sorry, interpretations. Yeah. Yeah. So this is, uh, Jayanta uh, attacks this idea and tries to build a theory wh- where words have two powers. They have the po- powers of referentiality, which also Kumarila would uh, accept. Mm-hmm. And they have a second power, which, call, which he calls intentionality. Mm which is not to be confused with the intention of the speaker. It's right. something intrinsic in words, a power of words, because words are always set in a context. And this uh, being set in a context built uh, a sort of network between a language, between uh, words in a sentence, in a chapter, in a book, by which words have an um, increasing power of, uh, of meaning, according to the context they are set in. So there is no need of uh, postulation or other inferential, uh, micro-inferential processes on the side of the Mm -hmm. listener, Mm -hmm. because the words themselves convey this intentionality. Mm -hmm. And this builds, uh, this chapter shows uh, the interconnection between Mimamsa, Nyaya and Vyakarana. This all goes back to Panini, ultimately. Mm-hmm. Panini was seeing the sentence as, a, a, let's call it a, a solar system where mm-hmm. this, this, the, the sun is the center of the solar system, and that is the kriya, the action, the verb of a sentence. Mm-hmm. And all the other words revolving around the actions are the satellites and planets that mm-hmm. they build together the solar system that we call sentence and sentence meaning. Right. So all the words work together in a sentence with each other. And none of the words independently can produce this global result, which we call the sentence meaning. Mm-hmm. So, and words like a verb, uh, the subject, uh, the object, an adjective, all the particle of the sentence, they all have a capacity to build, uh, to bring, to, to, to contribute to the global effect that we call sentence meaning. Mm-hmm. This capacity is what Jayanta is calling intentionality, basically. Mm-hmm. And this is, of course, a modular uh, uh, concept, because then you can say that a sentence works together, together with other sentences in a chapter of a book. Mm-hmm. Right. So, and, and so on and so on. No? Right. And so this idea, this sort of um, uh, idea that uh, the, the sentence is something um, constructed out of the, the parts of the word, uh, sorry, the parts of the sentence, the words which have this intrinsic uh, intentionality, that's uh, Jayantabhatta's way of navigating the Mimamsa and uh, Nyaya contributions. We also have in the next two chapters of the um, this section, a discussion of Jayantabhata um, in terms of another idea about sentence meaning, which is rasa. And the, so the last two chapters kind of cap off the book and bring us to um, the ref- reference or meanings which are uh, not necessarily um, 
ordinary descriptions or the objects of uh, a command, but there's something something else. Can you tell us what is at issue in these last two chapters and how it's related to the, the question of sentence meaning and word meaning? Yes, this uh, also builds up uh, historically because the two chapters show the development uh, post-Jayanta, immediately after Jayanta, or contemporary, we could say, of mm -hmm. the, the birth of a new science, which is poetics. Which incidentally is again in Kashmir, just uh, in the same milieu where Jayanta was uh, working and acting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the uh, Andrews, Andrew Ollett's uh, chapter is not about Jayanta actually, but is uh, oh, about, sorry, about, the yeah, about the poeticians uh, uh, writing in Kashmir around the time of Jayanta. Some of them, like Abhinava Gupta and Hanika and Boja, they have picked up Jayanta's idea of that mm -hmm. part, of intentionality, actually. Mm -hmm. And uh, so they are influenced, actually, by Mimamsa, by Jayanta. So uh, this, this uh, chapter by Andrew Ollett shows very clearly how all these uh, new, so-called new poetics uh, developing at that time was uh, heavily influenced by uh, the grammarians, by the Mimamsakas and by the logician, by the Nayaikas. So mm -hmm. he is uh, showing how this, diff this new idea was uh, a uh, created by through the, 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 the ideas developed in, the, in, a, in the, the other discrete traditions. And particularly, he focuses on the idea of what is the meaning of a poetical sentence. And the answer is that is the aesthetic experience. Mm -hmm. So he is a building a, in part provocative, but a idea that when you hear a music piece or a poetic sentence, the experience that you get, the effect, is not a spiritual emancipation like in the case of the Veda when you apply the injunctions of the Veda, is not knowledge of reality. Mm -hmm. external reality, but it is an inner aesthetic experience, which is called technically rasa, mm -hmm. relish, aesthetic relish. And mm -hmm. uh, yes, that is uh, Andrew Ollett's. Mm -hmm. While uh, the last chapter by Daniele Cuneo is... Uh, mm, is uh, mostly about uh, uh, our dear Mukula, uh, <laughs> author of the Abhidhavrita Matrika, the let's call uh, our, um, the elements mm -hmm. of signification, mm -hmm. a, a, a very nice, dense, uh, and uh, amazingly influential booklet written uh, about uh, probably at the time of Jayant or maybe a few decades earlier. Mm -hmm. which is about uh, indication. Indication in the sense that uh, we saw with the Lawrence McRae uh, chapter on uh, Kumarila, Lakshana, the passage from words to sentence meaning, but the, an expansion of this idea of indication to every poetical meaning. Mm -hmm. So every poetical meaning means understanding a primary meaning and then having this primary meaning indicating other things. 
that can be yeah very expanded uh, in at, at, at many degrees of expansion mm-hmm. so to say right right this uh, this this idea of mukula again uh, is uh, I, I thought it is a nice uh, end of the book because for two reasons one is that uh, in this particular section it uh, reiterates or uh, corroborates kumarila's uh, idea that every uh, linguistic usage is indication because that's mm-hmm. what Mukula uh, emphasizes, uh, stresses mm-hmm. that uh, mm-hmm. everything is indication in language. Yeah. And uh, of course, also that uh, individual words are not used in isolation. Right. But uh, that is one part. The other mm-hmm. part is that Mukula is uh, bringing uh, uh, to a practical application in his treatise the influence of the three main traditions that mm-hmm. we were talking about, grammar, mm-hmm. exegesis, and logic, yeah. or epistemology more, uh, more precisely. Right. And uh, these are, you can see how these uh, three traditions are emerging Again and again in his uh, in his uh, in his treatise, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, here and there he gives authority to the Mimamsaka or to the Vayakarana or to the mm-hmm. Nayaika in different mm-hmm. moments uh, during mm-hmm. his exposition. Mm-hmm. And apart from this, uh, of course, uh, there is uh, a you can it, it also transpires in between the lines is Mukula's actual belief, which is. Uh, uh, a conviction about the monism of, uh, of language. Mm. So, mm-hmm. Martriari, philosophy right. of grammar, right. which is not uh, spoken out, but is, nope. uh, very, but is very clear that throughout mm-hmm. the book, uh, it's, uh, that is where his, uh, his faith uh, is, mm-hmm. uh, lies, mm-hmm. actually. Mm-hmm. So, that is, uh, so, I thought that uh, Mukula's chapter shows both uh, a, a, a very nice uh, explanation of poetical implications, mm-hmm. but also a sort of uh, historical uh, resume of yeah. uh, these three important traditions. Yeah, yeah, it's a nice conclusion. He, as you as you know well, he explicitly refers to all of these these um, shastras in his his text, and he he draws on on Spota and Bhartrahari. So it's uh, it's a nice cap to this uh, very very thorough, uh, historically grounded work here. And so uh, I've taken up a lot of your time and I appreciate it very much. Uh, is there anything about the book that we haven't mentioned that you think listeners should know briefly? Mm, I would say two things. One thing is that uh, when we think of, uh, of uh, philosophy in India, we we are uh, still uh, in the 21st century influenced by the hegelian uh, uh, prejudice i mean the uh, caused uh, the prejudice born since the hegelian's time mm. that uh, india is about uh, transcendence and spirituality and the present political situation uh, in india does not help in that sense mm-hmm. because it reiterates this preconception but mm-hmm. in this book, I think uh, we can see how, how much of uh, uh, dialectical, uh, dialectics uh, de- debate on, on rational, uh, from rational uh, points of view are developed. Mm-hmm. That, ration, that the spirituality is often an excuse 
to engage mm. in real world philosophy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That is, uh, and there are so many intuition in philosophy of language, in philosophy of grammar, in epistemology, in hermeneutics, uh, deontic language, that they are still uh, useful uh, to expand our philosophical horizons nowadays. So this mm-hmm. uh, is, uh, I think it's important to reiterate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, the other thing I would say that we also tend to think of India as uh, traditions like Mimamsa, mm-hmm. Nyaya, mm-hmm. Vyakarana, Poetic, Salankara Shastra. But, and, and the Indian authors themselves, uh, they, are, they tend to say, oh, I belong to this, I'm following my predecessor, I'm not inventing anything new. They tend to say this, but that's actually not the, the case. As I tried to show in the, in the, in the, in the structure of the construction of this book uh, by giving voice to different uh, Indian authors throughout the times, I wanted to show also how these were real life people, individual thinkers who were mm-hmm. having very original ideas mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. they had original contributions, each of them. Mm-hmm. So I also tried to, to build a, a history of ideas by, by philosophers' names, not just mm-hmm. by traditions. Mm-hmm. Great. So yeah, I would I say this is important to stress, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and that's very apparent. Because when titles. we see when we see a, a India from a distance, uh, of course, we it's difficult to to notice the 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 differences, the details. Mm-hmm. We mm-hmm. also, but uh, but these were definitely there, not yeah. just like uh, they were there in the history of Western philosophy. Mm-hmm. There mm-hmm. is nothing yeah. uh, nothing particular in India or different than what uh, it happened in the Greek, uh, Roman mm-hmm. and uh, Western mm-hmm. philosophy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Great. Well, well, thank you for your, your time. Uh, what are you working on now that this edited volume is, is finally in print and out? Uh, now I'm, I'm, I'm working on translation, translation uh, practice in the sense that I'm working very hard in translating, translating a huge chunk of the Nyaya Manjari of Jayanta Bhatta on philosophy of language mm-hmm. specifically. Mm-hmm. And uh, particularly on this topic of theory of compositionality and uh, the spota, the refutation mm-hmm. of the idea of the spota. So mm-hmm. I'm bringing out soon a translation on that. And uh, in this connection, I'm also working on theory of translation because uh, mm-hmm. I'm increasingly realizing how much uh, translating uh, is uh, an important part of uh, the life of our scholars. Yeah. And I have to thank you, Malcolm, for helping me realizing this because uh, oh. <laughs> I recently used your translation of, the, of Mukula's work and uh, in my course, and I found it uh, terrific, uh, terrifically oh, well, effective you. for the students. So, so I, I'm inspired by your work also. Oh, well, thank, also thank by you. bringing out the upcoming uh, Bloomsbury book on, uh, on postulation. That right. was also right. a, a very good incentive for me to, to work on this. But I, okay. I'm realizing also, also how difficult it is to translate. Mm-hmm. translate. Mm-hmm. It is the most difficult uh, part I have, in, I, am, I have engaged ever in my career as a, mm. as a scholar. Yeah. This is really yeah. a very difficult thing to do. And unfortunately, an under-rewarded part yes, in our, yes, our, absolutely. In our academic absolutely. career. And that is not absolutely. good. No. So we should do something to this. We should translate mm-hmm. more because it is mm-hmm. very 
important. And uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. So well, I uh, I look forward to seeing the results of the your efforts in both of those uh, both of those areas when they're available to the rest of us to uh, to take a look at. Thank you again. Thank you very for, much. Yes. Yeah, of course. Of course. Uh, thank you again for your time, Alessandro, and um, my best wishes to you.